Welcome to 502 Conversations. I'm Brian Kirby, and my guest today is Dr. Danigal Young. Dr. Young, Dr. Danigal, did I get that right, I hope? You did. You did get it right. Yeah. Dr. Young or Dana is fine. Dana. Okay. Dana, Dr. Young. All right. I have a brief bio on you. Well, actually, it's not that brief, which I shall read. Um, I apologize. This is the point where you are on screen with me, and so I say a lot of nice things about you, so you can just sit there and look awkward. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Sorry about that. I'll drink my coffee. Okay. Dr. Young is a professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware, where she studies the content, audience, and effects of non-traditional political information. She has published over 60 academic articles and book chapters on the content, psychology, and effects of political information, satire, and misinformation. She is a research fellow with the University of Delaware's Center for Political Communication, and is a recipient of the university's Excellence in Teaching Award. Dr. Young's 2020 TED Talk, explaining how our psychology shapes our politics and how media exploit these relationships, has been viewed almost two million times. She publishes extensively in the popular press with essays and op-eds and outlets, including Vox.com, The Washington Post, and The Atlantic. She has appeared on CNN, PBS NewsHour, ABC News, NPR, and various national and international podcasts. Her popular University of Delaware course, Propaganda and Persuasion, was released by Wondrium's The Great Courses in 2023. Her book, Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the U.S., examines satire and outrage as the logical extensions of the respective psychological profiles of liberals and conservatives and her new book is Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. On top of all of that, Dr. Young is also an improvisational comedian performing regularly with the improv... Darn it, I made it through regularly. That's the hard one. <laughs> performing regularly... You used it all up. You <laughs> used it all up on regularly. On top of all that, Dr. Young is also an improvisational comedian performing regularly with the improv comedy troupe Comedy Sports Philadelphia, and she has worked with flackcheck.org to debunk inaccurate political claims through satire and parody. You probably don't mention this next part a lot, but I'm going to. She grew up in New Hampshire and graduated from the University of New Hampshire before moving to Philadelphia to pursue her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. She has been a professor at the University of Delaware since 2006. And the reason I mentioned New Hampshire and growing up in New Hampshire, I am in Boston. This is Massachusetts, so you're right next door. And it's interesting when you speak about identity and otherization when we get to the book. I mean, something you write about is going home to visit and having out-of-state license plates, and now you're from away. And I sympathize greatly because I grew up in Maine. And I went to the University of Maine before I moved to Massachusetts to get my master's degree. So when I go back to visit, sometimes I'll even borrow my mom's car if I need to run some errands. So it's just. Well, Brian, I don't know which is worse, though. I don't know if it's worse to visit, you know, I'd say Vermont, New Hampshire or Maine with a New Jersey plate or a Massachusetts plate. I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like they're both pretty bad. I mean, when I was a kid, Massachusetts was the one. So because we, we saw a lot of people from Massachusetts. And, and then as I got older, you started to see more people from New Jersey. New Jersey was just seemed so far and just like 
it was just like a, a, an enemy that you don't know. Whereas Massachusetts is an enemy that you do know, you know. Yeah, and we'll be, this is foreshadowing perhaps something we'll get to in the book. Sure. I read the book over the weekend. It's a great book, Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. Do you want to just get started, or do you want to give me a synopsis, a brief synopsis of, of the book before we go deep? Um, I can just give you a brief synopsis, okay. you know, so for a little context. Um, I have been working in the space of, of political communication and looking at the effects of information on attitudes, behaviors, and knowledge um, for a long time. And one of the things that I, I'm really interested in is why people are attracted to information in the first place, because people aren't just randomly exposed to misinformation. Uh, so those interests kind of came together as we found ourselves in the midst of the dual crises of, of COVID and election denialism. And so I decided there's so much research in this space, but a lot of it doesn't get to regular folks who are really desperate to understand what's going on. So I decided to do a public facing book that I'm calling not, not on the supply side of misinformation, like not looking necessarily at, at propaganda and mis and disinformation that's out there. There's a whole lot of work on that, but on, you know, what are some of the social psychological forces that are at play that might make us more likely to be attracted to misinformation in the first place. So that's, that's the purpose of the book. That is what the book is for. And I really like that part about it, writing about the people side of misinformation. And what I mean, I mean, you, you write about the other side too, but what I, what I mean is there's a lot, as you said, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, and you do talk about who's spreading it, but you also concentrate really on the receiving end, uh, who is susceptible and who identifies with misinformation. And I especially like how you point out that we're all susceptible because I know a lot of people they'll look at somebody that they think is susceptible and say, oh, that could never happen to me. <laughs> and I mean, even yourself, you start with an interesting story of how you became a conspiracy theorist and then you, how you worked out of it, which may be the unusual part. But you also relate that early in the pandemic, you started to see your prior conspiracy self uh, manifest in friends and loved ones. And I found that interesting. I always do because I imagine as a scholar, many of your friends come from the circle of academia and I gotta guess they're pretty well educated. So further indication that we're all susceptible depending on the circumstances. And so you wrote that they weren't unintelligent. So what made them you? What can make all of us susceptible? Yeah, yeah. these are I mean, really well-educated folks, um, well-meaning folks who were in the early days of the pandemic really desperate to figure out what is going on. What do we know? What do we not know? And oftentimes checking in with friends and loved ones my puppies right here, checking in with friends and loved ones to try to understand how is it that we, here's Luna, I want to say hello. How is it that we are making sense of this moment? Because truly that is what we often do. We often look to friends and loved ones to say, how are we making sense of what's going on here? Like I need, I need some kind of certainty. And so I'm going to look to the people who I care about and respect and trust and to figure out how is it that we're making sense of this? So really, when we're talking about what was going on in the early days of COVID, it was it was a lack of information, right? Because people really didn't know a lot about what was going on. And so when there's an information vacuum, we're desperate to make sense of things. And number two, there was a real sense of threat and uncertainty, right? Looming threat. Everything felt foreign. You know, schools were shut down. We weren't allowed to go places. We were supposed to wipe down our groceries. I, it, it, we couldn't 
you know, leave the house. It felt very stressful. And when we are under threat and there's a lack of information, we are desperate to come up with some way of understanding, controlling, and feeling like we're sharing our behaviors with others. So, you know, these are folks who who were responding in a way that actually is quite logical and understandable. And I think we need to be sympathetic to. Um, I was in that. I was, I mean, how much information searching did we do in the early days of COVID? Just Googling constantly, looking at the news constantly, updating like death counts and illness counts constantly. Um, that is an effort to make sense of the world. The issue is that a lot of folks were exploiting that moment. So there were bad actors who were exploiting their, that moment and providing information that was untrue. But there were also folks who maybe just because of their own lack of trust in institutions and maybe because of their own lack of trust in, in science or their own lack of understanding of science, they came up with answers two questions, but those answers were not true. You also wrote about it that um, you brought in there your three C's, comprehension, control, and being a member of a community. So you write that identity-based fictions give us that sense of comprehension, control, and community. Can you give me an example? Yeah, so identity-based fictions are um, any kind of falsehood that helps satisfy our, it, it offers us, us a sense of comprehension. It offers us a way to understand things, okay? It offers us a way to control our world, and it offers us a sense of community with others, okay? So one of the ways that you can do that is if you think about that the community of anti-maskers, right? In the U.S., there was a, a large community of people who saw masks as maybe even not helpful, but maybe as even harmful, Okay, so these were individuals who their comprehension, they understood masks to be either making people more sick, which is not true, or not slowing the spread, which was also not true. Number two, in terms of control, their need for control, they saw efforts by the government to recommend masks. They saw that as controlling. And so to exert their own control, they sought to uh, push back against that and say, we're not gonna do this. That was them exercising control. And in terms of community, it was very much, you know, there were communities of anti-maskers, there were protests, there were Facebook groups. It was very much, this is how people like us are, are understanding this issue. This is how people like us are behaving. Um, and so, when folks who look like you and think like you and share values with you are also people who see masks as fundamentally not helpful, that is going to be something that's then going to shape your own thoughts about masks. And I don't know how deep we want to get on this part, but it seems here that in the quest for knowledge, in, in those cases and some other misinformation cases, it seems that belief kind of becomes more important, or I should say, it usurps the other aspects of knowledge, such as justification and truth. So belief becomes the operation there, not the justification or whether or not it's true. So maybe you believe that masks are bad. Um, you can't really justify that and it's not true. Uh, maybe you think the 2020 election was stolen due to massive fraud, but there's no evidence or justification. It's not true. It's all based on belief, right? So I'll say right now, people are saying, everybody knows, there's no way my candidate could have lost 
That doesn't count as evidence, okay? So that's not justification. So does belief usurp justification and truth and comprehension, control, and community? Um, I, I think that it's, I think of belief in kind of a different way. I think of belief as a combination of sort of an affective and cognitive um, set of components. So I guess my, my thought here is, if there is a piece of information that you have either come up with on your own or that has been given to you that satisfies those needs for comprehension, control, and community, then it really is beside the point whether or not there is empirical evidence that it is factually true. Because, and I think about it this way, there's so much research on um, from evolutionary psychology on, on what are the ways of understanding the world that have been beneficial to us as a species. And it's really so group oriented. We cannot survive alone. We survive in groups. So in that regard, being accurate in what you see as an individual is far less important to our survival then feeling like we understand the world the way that our team does, we're able to control it or we feel able to control it the way our team does, and that we are enacting and connecting with our community in the way that our team does that. How do we know what we know? Or how do we think we how do we know what we think we know? And how does that relate to actually being wrong? <laughs> how do we know what we think we know? So I you know, I teach a class at the University of Delaware on epistemology and the philosophy of the science of, of communication theory in particular, but really epistemology is at the heart of it. And so I really thought as I started writing the book, gosh, I really can't write this book without addressing epistemology, but I don't want to actually write a book about epistemology. Even the word is horrifying. Um, so what I do is I describe in a very simplistic way the, the two ways that individuals understand their worlds that work cyclically, right? Induction and deduction. And induction is where you make observations of the world and you then induce things from them. You generalize from those observations to larger truths. Uh, and that can often result in false beliefs because just because we observe something in this context doesn't mean that a broader truth about it is true. Um, and I also then talk about deductive reasoning, right? Where there is a broad pop proposition that we accept to be true, and we then deduce from that a more specific hypothesis or a specific claim based on that broad pop proposition. And I use the example of when you buy a house plant at the grocery store, what do you do with it when you get home? You put it in the window. How do you know to do that? How do you know to do that? And really, it comes down to a combination of inductive and deductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is perhaps you have had other houseplants that you have put in dark spots in the past and they've died. And so you're like, oh, I guess we need sunlight because you've had other plants in the past that you put in the window and they've thrived. And then on the other side, perhaps you remember taking classes and learning about the whole process of photosynthesis. And maybe you've never had a plant before. Maybe you've never even seen one in real life. But you know that you just bought a plant and you know that plants need sunlight. 
And so therefore, this thing needs sunlight. So I, I, I really start to unpack that process and how that works. And then I describe how the problem with this equation is that our observations of the world themselves are not objective. Our observations are, to quote Hansen, that they're theory laden. So when we see the world, there is no seeing the world absence or interpretation of the world. We are already seeing things in ways that fit with our pre-existing values and beliefs. So that's consistent with what people know as motivated reasoning or confirmation bias, right? We see the world in keeping with the way we want to see the world. And that poses a real problem for scientists, right? Where empirical observation is the essence of truth, et cetera. So scientists I describe have all kinds of ways to keep ourselves from kind of going off the rails, right? Scientists have very strict tests. You have to be able to falsify a claim. You cannot just verify something and then say it's true. It has to be able to be proven wrong. And you're just constantly, constantly trying to break your theory. So I think getting into those nuts and bolts is really helpful because it helps to explain that the, the human experience is not really tailor-made for truth-seeking, but we have historically come up with some processes to get us kind of closer to truth if that if if it's possible. Um, so that's sort of at the beginning to kind of create a framework. Do you mind if I mention abduction? Sure. Because um, you mentioned induction, deduction. And so I think this might have been part of the uh, problem that we'll get to in the Great Divide is that, you know, science is abductive, right? It's inference to the best explanation. There's always a chance that you're going to be wrong. You leave it open. You have the attitude that I could be wrong. I throw this out there. My peers are going to look at it. Maybe there's a great mistake I made. They'll check it out. We'll find out. It could be 50 years. It could be 100 years, right? And before you're proven wrong. Could be in a parallel universe, Brian. <laughs> okay. Right. So, so that is, I think that's what abduction is. So induction, deduction, abduction, this inference to the best explanation, we could be wrong. You wrote about this. You have a great chapter on the apparent great ideological divide and what, but I'm wondering, do you think that's kind of what happened? I mean, now we're at this point where why can't people that disagree still base decisions on the best available evidence and then just, you know, it's not going to be 100%, but if the evidence indicates, we'll make adjustments or we'll change our mind. But it seems like we have this great ideological divide. Where did that come from? Okay, I'm trying to figure out how, that was a, a lot in one little question. So My apologies. In, <laughs> Take it any way no, you that, like. <laughs> that was great. Uh, in the U.S. context, everyone knows that that things politically are seem to be on fire. Okay, but and a lot of folks talk about political polarization, which scholars study among elites, right? That people in Congress, for example, have become more polarized. The votes over the past 40 years have become more, um, you know, party line votes. There's less compromise between elites. There's also a suggestion that the votes that are cast in Congress by lawmakers are becoming more ideologically extreme on each side, especially on the right, where we see, especially on social and cultural votes, those are becoming more extreme. 
When you look at the public itself, there's less evidence of that ideological polarization, uh, mainly because there's an increasing number of folks who identify as independent. And there's people are a lot more complicated than lawmakers think they are, and they have a lot more nuanced views. However, that being said, we know that what's happening among the public that is appears to be real is this increased hostility towards political outgroups. So Democrats will say they really don't like Republicans and vice versa. And that has been increasing over the last several decades. And that has all kinds of bad outcomes as well, right? Because if you see your political outgroup as someone that you don't like, there are moral judgments that come with that. In addition, and I think where, where a lot of political scientists are landing now is in this space looking at social identity, that it's not just that we have different policy positions from the other side. It's not just that we don't we say we don't like the other side. It is that the makeup of the two political parties has become increasingly distinct from one another and increasingly homogenous internally. Uh, when you look at, and I I always say I couldn't write this book without the work of Liliana Mason and some other political scientists working in this space where you know, she documents how the Republican Party has become increasingly homogeneously white, evangelical, Christian, rural dwelling, and ideologically, culturally conservative while the Democratic Party has become more racially, ethnically diverse, um, more secular and agnostic, uh, Democrats live in the suburbs and in the cities, some in the rural areas, um, but they've also become more ideologically, culturally liberal on those social issues. So the issue then is that it's not just about policy positions, it's about entire ways of life. And if you ask folks who study democratic health around the globe, like um, Steve Levitsky and Dan Ziblatt, who wrote um, How Democracies Die, one of the most challenging set of factors for democracies to, to face is when the political parties overlap with more primal aspects of identity, especially like race, religion, and ethnicity. Because then what you have are political factions not built on ideas, but built on types of people, types of people rooted in, in really primal, fundamental aspects of who they are and how they live. So that set of circumstances in the United States that I document in the early part of the book, that history, the fact that that sorting has happened is sets in motion the possibility for social psychology related to groups to play a really central role in how, how people are engaging with each other and understanding the world. Um, and I'll just say that that sorting was not arbitrary. I think it's crucial to say that the sorting of the parties came about because of America's issues with race. So in the 1960s, as the civil rights movement is happening, as um, 
Black people are migrating north and west to cities, there is an increase, increasing pressure on the Democratic Party to embrace civil rights issues directly related to racial equality. Then you have the Republican Party realizing that, you know, there's an opportunity here to focus on states' rights and to double down on evangelical Christians as a sort of natural partner for this sort of socially conservative movement. So you have this sort of um, this separation of different kinds of people into these two different coalitions, again, not based necessarily on specific ideas. Although you could say, yes, representation and civil rights and equal rights, those are policy ideas. But the result then is the sorting of different kinds of people into these parties. Let me bring that right to today, okay? Kevin McCarthy just got polarized out of his position, right? Well, that's the way I see it. And then some things I've heard in the news recently based on that. So, But the American people, they want someone installed that's not going to be polarizing, that's going to reach across the aisle. So he got polarized out because I guess he wasn't on his team enough, if that makes sense. And we've seen this happen on the other side. There can be left-leaning ideological teams. Um, we've seen professors get bounced from universities for, you know, I'll, I won't even grossly paraphrase. We'll just let it go at that, right? So we've seen uh, people bounced because they're not part of the team ideologically enough. What, my team, what does my team think and how, how does the importance we put on being part of that group influence how we become susceptible to misinformation? I guess I've Great. rolled two things in there at once, but being part of a team <laughs> makes us susceptible to misinformation or we at least go along with it because we don't want to be bounced. That's good, yeah. Um, well, let me just give you an, uh, an anecdote that I think is important um, because it's so tied to this. It's, it's hard to find people who just study misinformation or just study false information, but who don't also study hateful and harmful information. And when you look online for resources related to misinformation, you're also probably going to find content about hateful and harmful content. And that is because misinformation in our environment that is appealing and that goes viral and that people cling to is not arbitrary. It is most often tied to identity. It's tied to groups. It's tied to perceptions of group threat. It's tied to um, status competitions between groups, right? Like think about, think about the pieces of misinformation that are out there. It really is very frequently about group identity. So, what ends up happening when we are a member of a group and we feel that group identity as a huge part of who we are, okay? Which doesn't always happen, by the way, right? The, the social identity theory, if you look back over the last several decades, one of the key aspects of social identity theory is that social identities are malleable. They change. How I think of myself is very much dependent on context. One day, um, you know, if I'm at the school fair, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm a PTA mom. 
right? Uh, if I am down on Main Street supporting a local business, I think of myself as a member of, of my town here in New Jersey. If I go back to um, the University of New Hampshire, I think of myself as a UNH wildcat. So what identity we're tapping into, what hat we're wearing is, is always in flux. The issue right now in the United States is that because the teams of the right and the left, I did that opposite on purpose so that it would be right to you. I don't know if that worked. The right and the left. Okay. So the right and the left are so intertwined with all these other aspects of who we are, right? What we look like, race, ethnicity, religion, where we live, how we live, what we drive, what we listen to, that our, these mega identities, I'm on the right, I'm on the left, are active a lot. They're activated a lot. So we're thinking of ourselves in terms of them a lot. They're just chronically activated all the time. So when you have an identity that is chronically activated and someone gives you some reason to feel that that team, the one that you're identifying with, is under threat, you are not necessarily going to see clearly because once threat, group threat is activated, you're going to do what you can to be a good member of your team, make sure that that outgroup is held at bay, and make sure that you have some power in this equation and that you are displaying and expressing and performing your group allegiance in ways that are appreciated by your team. And I like um, how that rolled into something else you wrote about in the book, which I guess I hadn't thought about, but I do myself and it's obvious. I wasn't much of a voting person in the late 80s and the 90s because I wasn't that old, right? But I like how you wrote that people used to support their team because they liked their candidate, right? But now, and I fall into this trap myself, people, it's not so much they support their candidate, they just can't stand the other guy, right? So maybe I don't really like Joe Biden that much, but he's my guy. Um, not sure if there were a primary or whatever they call it, I'd go with him. But you know what? I hate Trump so much, I'm going to put out a Joe Biden sign, and I'm going to vote for Joe Biden to display my hatred for Trump. So it's party pride versus animus of others. Do you think we, at this point, with McCarthy being bounced for that reason, we might see some um, pushback. The pendulum will swing a little bit, we're hoping. <laughs> I don't know. I'm always hoping, but I, I am not optimistic right now uh, that that's going to happen. But, but you know, that work and that part of the book is really based on some research by political scientists. Um, Shanto Iyengar has done some work in that space and others. Um, the The notion that what is driving political participation is not party pride, but is outgroup hate, is, should really concern all of us. It's really not great. It's not great for democracy. It's not great for the likelihood of compromise and negotiation. It's not great for um, interpersonal trust. Think about how important just that basic concept of interpersonal trust is for a society. For us to be able to go out in the world and really trust that our fellow humans are good and usually trying to do what's right. When you have, when you are sort of steeped in 
political animosity, that sense of interpersonal trust becomes sort of secondary because you, you're like, oh, I don't, these people could support that other guy. And if they support that other guy, then they're bad people. And that's, that's I think, what is driving a lot of the concern in this space is that issue of moralized contempt, right? It's like, it's like, it's not just that they have other beliefs. It's not just they're on another team. It's that they're immoral. That if you support this, you are immoral. Um, some work by my colleague, Aaron Cassess at the University of Delaware looks at how when your political identity is really salient and it's prominent in your mind, you'll be more likely to dehumanize the other side. You literally see them as less human because they're on the other team. And, and that's when we really need to start thinking about how do we get out of this conundrum? Because when people see the other side as less than human, the, some of the things, for example, are we will tend to, we will be less likely to support their democratic rights, right? Because if they're less than human, if they're immoral, then why should I let them have freedom of speech? Because they're immoral. They're, they're inhuman. I, I can't let them speak. I can't let them exercise their franchise. I can't let them protest. So those kinds of, of really hostile social psychological processes have all kinds of potential negative outcomes. And I, don't even, I haven't even mentioned the idea of acceptance of political violence, which is also at the end of that train, right? Um, so I think this leads us to part also what you wrote, how does my team think intuition, uh, intuition, emotion versus evidence? And it seems like the team, your team, your leaders, I don't know, they can give you a lot of emotion to, to, to get you on their side. Like you've just displayed all those, you know, race or moral, they're immoral, they're dehuman, inhuman. Those are, you know, those are emotion, they're pedophile. They're running an entire pedophile ring. We have to do something, right? Um, so... Those nail, those really get at the emotional aspect of it, right? But here's what I want to ask you is, when you're talking about epistemology or how we think about thinking, it's a lot easier to go with your gut and your emotions rather than try and figure out what's happening here, what are best policies, who's going to enforce, but, and we really don't have access to that information. Maybe the country is roughly split 50-50, Democrat, 50-50. I'm sorry, 50% Democrat, 50% Republican, roughly. We're roughly half male, half female. But I'm not sure we're roughly half emotion-based and half uh, evidence-based. And I mean evidence-based here, not the tagline you see on supplement commercials now. It's evidence-based, right? We really mean evidence-based. But it's so hard to find that evidence. It's, it's like work. It's like exercise. So how do... How does that increase? How do we increase that in the population? Yeah. So not to mention the fact that for people like regular folks like us who do want to make evidence-based decisions, um, you're right. We don't have access to sort of primary sources and doing our own research means going on Google and finding some kind of BS that somebody might've just put up there yesterday. Right. So how do we engage with the world in ways that are evidence-based? 
I think we need to be really honest that for a lot of us who think of ourselves as evidence-based, what we're actually doing is putting our trust in people who we perceive as experts and in institutions that we see as expert and credible. And we are assuming that they are engaging in evidence-based research. So I think this to me is super intriguing because it means that People who are saying, oh, yeah, I am evidence-based in how I see the world. Are you, though, or are you trust-based? Are you using trust? Are you putting trust in people that you perceive as experts because you see them as the scientists using evidence, using data, et cetera? The problem then comes when you have individuals who do not have trust, who think that scientists are corrupt, or who think that you know scientists are out to better themselves, or who don't trust the institutions like the government or higher ed because they think that they're part of some conspiracy. Then we have a real problem because then you have the individuals who will say, yes, I, I like to come at the world through evidence and I want evidence-based conclusions, but I'm not gonna use their evidence because they're not trustworthy. And then you find them engaging in all these sort of online communities and behaviors where that their search for evidence is bringing them to what? Misinformation that confirms their priors, that tells them that the elites are out to better themselves and that there is a grand conspiracy. Um, so that is very tricky. The reason that I discussed this, by the way, is because I think that it's really it's very common for folks who ally themselves with, with like science and with empirical evidence to be very condescending and judgmental towards people who they think are understanding the world in the wrong way. It's like, oh, you're understanding the world in the wrong way because you are not using evidence. You're not being rational. But what evidence are you using yourself, you person who says that you are coming to the world through evidence, right? Or are you basing your views on trust? I think that's crucial because part of what part of what fuels this bifurcation in society, again, identity threat. So if you have a group of people that feel like they are being condescended to, that feel like they are constantly being judged, constantly being told, your way of understanding the world is wrong. We're the ones who think the right way. Uh, I, I, that is problematic for a thousand reasons, especially because while we do see that those individuals who report coming to truth through intuition and emotion, those, those people exist, okay? And the people who do report valuing intuition and emotion they are more likely to believe misinformation and they are more likely to support populist authoritarians. Um, some of my work shows these linkages in the context of Donald Trump support. But do we know how they are actually coming to truth? And do we know how people who say they value evidence and data do we know that they're not using intuition and emotion? Absolutely not. You know, when we measure these things among the public and we ask people, um, you know, how much do you agree or disagree with these items? And some of them are like, 
I trust my gut to tell me what's true. Um, emotions are like an important part of understanding the world versus um, a hunch needs to be confirmed with data before you can accept it as true, et cetera, et cetera. These are two separate scales. And when we put them together and we run a correlation, they are positively correlated. People who say they value intuition and emotion as pathways to truth are more likely to also say they value evidence and data as pathways to truth. So, you know, my assumption here is that what's going on underneath this is these are individuals who really enjoy thinking about thinking in general. So the, the notion that these two things work against each other is incorrect. What I think is happening, and I've been working on some new um, papers in this space, what I think is happening is we know that populist authoritarian leaders like Donald Trump celebrate faith and intuition, perform faith and intuition, talk about their hunches and their guts, talk about how they don't need those scientists to tell them stuff because they, you know, I, I get it. I feel it. I know what's true. I don't, I don't need you to advise me. When you have a leader performing that way of knowing and celebrating that way of knowing, think about what that does. Think about how protective that is if you're a populist authoritarian. Because now, if it's if truth is arrived at through intuition and emotion, I don't need to be worried about disconfirming evidence. I don't need to be worried about fake news. I don't need to even concern myself with anyone who brings some contradictory evidence to me because that is not where truth lies. Like how strategically smart and diabolical is that? It is both. So now think about if, if a leader performs in that way and then gets folks to also celebrate that way of coming to truth, it really, I, I call it like a strategic escape hatch right? It's just like, you have that evidence, doesn't matter. I know it's not true. Uh, and, and that I see as something that is rhetorically and democratically harmful. And when you say it comes down to who you're going to trust, right? I'm paraphrasing. I'm sorry. You didn't say that, but right. <laughs> who are you going to yeah, trust? Yeah. You can vet your sources and, but they still yeah. could be wrong, right? Occasionally you yeah. might find some. So, I, I want to ask you about intellectual humility because I love how you summed up the the section on us, the people that are receiving the information with intellectual humility, humility because it kind of reminded me, somebody I once interviewed said, you know, always find out who disagrees with you and why, right? Yeah. Be willing yeah. to be wrong. And during COVID, I was fortunate to have an FDA vaccine advisory committee member come on several times and talk with me and relate to the public. And in one of our conversations, I went back to something he said before, and he said, and I said, How, what happened? He goes, I was wrong. I made a mistake. And I mean, right there, that notches up his credibility in my eyes. It's not an opportunity for me to say, oh, so we can't trust you ever. <laughs> so can you talk about intellectual humility and what you mean by that? Right. So intellectual humility is the being open to the possibility that we might be wrong, recognizing the fallibility of our own knowledge, and, and being willing to adjust in the face of new information. 
And what's interesting about that example, Brian, though, is that here this, this expert came on your show and reflected on something they had said in the past and said, I was wrong. I stand corrected. And you're saying that you came away from that seeing this person as more credible because they had updated their beliefs, right? Oh, absolutely. In light of new information. So one of the, you know, in the second half of the book, when I talk about elites and media and platforms, one thing that concerns me so much is that the concept of intellectual humility, which we know has so many protective powers in the realm of truth-seeking, it is, it is punished in our information space. When people perform intellectual humility, when people update their views, when a politician says, I was wrong, I stand corrected, think about how they're framed. Think about how that is covered. It is covered as, oh, they're wishy-washy. Oh, oh, they, they don't have any convictions. Oh, they're just, it's so cynical. They're actually just trying to go with public opinion, right? Or they're weak, right? They're morally weak because they don't actually make a stand. What is rewarded in our media spaces generally is intellectual arrogance, right? This is what I think. This is what I know. You, you know, I'm not changing my view. I know I'm right. That is because our information space is so much about performance. It's about confidence and performance. So we talked early on about, you know, what it, how it's bizarre to, to be sort of a social scientist and also an improviser. I'll tell you what I know from being on stage is, you know, what our directors always say, which is people do not buy tickets to a show to watch you make weak choices on stage and kind of waffle. They buy a ticket to the show to make, to, to see you make confident choices to go in some direction. And that's true because it's just not entertaining. I ask, should our democratic information environment be shaped and determined by criteria like, is it entertaining? Should that be the chief consideration? I'll tell you what, intellectual humility, not entertaining. I mean, how many times can you hear someone say, I don't really know, you know, there's a lot of work on this, but we're not really sure yet, you know, and think about how that is punished in our information space. So my point is you did a good job by seeing that as a positive and by celebrating that. All right, we spent a lot of time on the first half of the book, totally my fault. Um, that's how we receive information. But now, you know, take a few minutes. I have a lot of questions about this, but I'll give you the opportunity because I know you have a heart out. Um, take a few minutes and tell me how that's used against us, whether it's yeah. intentional or not. I know the media chase dollars, so they want clickbaity click headlines. So they get that from the politicians. So it's like this vicious circle. So talk to me about how the three C's, comprehension, control, and community can be used against us. So we know that our social identities are shaping how these three C's are enacted, right? And how we seek to satisfy our needs for comprehension, control, and community in keeping with our team. So if, because of the way that social identity is such a mobilizer, it can cause us to be more emotionally engaged, pay more attention, take action. You know, you identify out group threat. What do we want to do? We probably want to attack, 
right? We want to pay attention. We want to engage. Because the driver of our information economy is attention and engagement, and because politicians and media industry leaders are looking to mobilize us, either to vote, right, if you're a politician, or to come back, to pay attention, to click, to watch. Social identity is lucrative. So these entities, whether it be political elites, news organizations, partisan cable news organizations, or social media platforms, they are all sort of operating in this world where tapping into our social identities, reminding us what team we're on, reminding us of threats to our team, offering up content that reminds us of that, serves as an observation of the world that we then make, right? Because think, we're always in this process of updating. We're looking at the world and we're always updating, even though our observations are theory-laden. Our observations are also identity-laden. We see the world in keeping with our team, not just in keeping with our underlying values. So now when we look out at the world and we're trying to make sense of politics or whatever, we look at our news, we look at TV, we look at billboards, we look at Facebook, and what is being offered up to us is content that has been designed to activate our social identity. So it's been curated already. It is drawing upon who we think we are, reinforcing our status in our team. So when we go to look at that content, what's it gonna do? It's going to reinforce it even more. It's going to start to distill our political identity into a more caricatured version of what it already was. So I use the metaphor of whiskey distillation because in the process of making whiskey, sometimes distillers will go through a process of distillation two times or three times where after you take out the impurities, you distill that whiskey again to pull out even more. Then you draw upon it again to pull out even more. Every time we enter our media information space, this is what is happening. Um, so I unpacked that in the context, again, of political elites, journalism, partisan media, and social media. And I talked specifically about how the norms in those spaces the economics of those spaces, the logics of those spaces, the incentives of those spaces are all driving the same darn train. And then in the final chapter, I talk about how we as individuals can disrupt this because they're all acting in anticipation of what they perceive we want and what they perceive we will respond to. Can I ask one question right there? Yeah. A great example you gave was Fox News called the election in 2020, or at least the first state, and then the next day they called the entire election. That could have been what, you know, that's what we want journalism to do. That was their legitimate, we're a real news organization. But what happened? Their viewers fled to Newsmax, and then yeah. Fox, the Fox got the hint, and they went on a months-long fake election conspiracy theory tirade. Yeah. Months long. So they did the right thing. They got terrible response for it, and then they switched gears. Okay, so they, yeah. when you say disrupt us, what should we expect of journalism? I mean, that's what we should have expected, but it backfired, and what should we expect of ourselves and politicians? You say, you know, they did the right thing by reporting on the election and saying Joe Biden won. 
And then they were punished for it by, by their viewers. Well, Fox News has put itself in a very sticky situation because, yes, they have a legitimate news organization there. They have a legitimate election desk there. But their bread and butter, what generates the bulk of their profit at Fox, are their quote-unquote analysis shows, the opinion shows. The opinion shows that are really just in the business of constantly engaging in identity threat, constantly. So... I think that the the reckoning, if I were at Fox News, the reckoning would not be, okay, well, I guess that we can't re report on elections objectively because I guess then um, our we can't report on elections honestly because then our viewers will leave us. Instead, I would come away thinking, well, I guess we can't always fan the flames of social identity and identity threat because then when we report on the truth, of an election and the way the world actually is, our viewers are gonna be mad because they're gonna think it's wrong. That's how I'd come away from it. However, I am not making millions and billions of dollars by generating outrage, identity-threatening content. Uh, but notice what happened. They ended up having to pay a huge amount of money because of the Dominion lawsuit, because by chasing their own tail, by chasing their audience into the spaces that the audience wanted them to go. They painted themselves into a corner and they ended up covering things and framing things in ways that were demonstrably false. I just used like 17 different metaphors, by the way. I don't know which one you should go with, but. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, when you're part of a team, if one large part of it delegitimizes your team, you kind of go down with it too. And that's what happened. The legitimate news desk got, you know, that's got to yeah. be very frustrating. So there's a lot more in the book that we didn't get to that I wanted to get to. Um, it is a great book, Dr. Danigal Young. Um, the book is Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. And it's told from both sides the consumer of misinformation, and then the spreader. We did not get to the spreader too much. Um, but I thank you so much. I hope this went well for you. Thank you. No, it's great. Great, great question. I should say that also you inspired me because I was signing up for improv like right before the pandemic. I was looking for a class to take, and I forgot about it. And then when I got your bio, I said, oh, wait, I wanted to do that. So I signed up, and now my third class is tomorrow. <laughs> Well, where are you taking improv classes? Uh, improv Boston, over, which is in Cambridge. <laughs> Excellent. So. Love it. Yeah. Yes. And it's a lot of fun. So. Yes. And you are going to be great. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Danigal Young. I greatly appreciate this. Look for the book. It is out. It's available for pre-order right now, but I'm sure by the time this gets produced, it'll be okay. available. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome.